Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Dr. David Moster about his new book, Etrog, How a Chinese Fruit Became a Jewish Symbol, published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2018. Every year before the holiday of Sukkot, Jews all around the world purchase an etrog, a lemon-like fruit, to participate in the holiday ritual. In this book, David Z. Moster tracks etrog from its evolutionary home in Yunnan, China, to the lands of India, Iran, and finally Israel where it became integral to the Jewish celebration of Sukkot. David, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. I teach biblical Hebrew. I teach people from the general public how to read the Tanakh. And I do that at my own institute, the Institute of Biblical Culture, as well as the Jewish Theological Seminary, JTS. And I do it all online, so people can really study with me from around the world. And um, as we were just speaking right before we started, uh, this month I have two new resources coming out on, you can get them on Amazon, for uh, Biblical Hebrew. One is a reference card for vocabulary, and one is a reference card for grammar. And so that's how I spend most of my time, is teaching and researching Biblical Hebrew. As well as I have a YouTube channel called Biblical Culture, where I make videos about more general topics uh, about the Tanakh. And if we move more specifically to the book, how did you come to write the book? Sure. So this book actually was a 10-year project. It was a labor of love. It was not my dissertation, but I did it alongside all my graduate studies. And it all started when I took a advanced level Hebrew course at Yeshiva University's Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies. And the professor basically said to us, I want you to go find an ambiguity in the Tanakh. Go find something that could be interpreted two different ways. Let's say Rashi would translate it one way and Ibn Ezra would translate it another way. So this was a real ambiguity. And the idea was to do as much research as we could. And that meant going into, you know, very rare kinds of interpreters, you know, going to the depths of the library, trying to find different ways to disambiguate this problem, to try and figure out, can we say who's right, Rashi or Ibn Ezra, for the example. And so I looked at the end of Leviticus chapter 23, which is a a calendar about the holidays. And at the very end of that chapter, it talks about Sukkot. And in verse 40, it mentions that these are the things you're supposed to take on Sukkot, which would eventually become the the lulav and etrog, all of that. But it doesn't mention etrog. So I was looking at this phrase and I found the phrase pre-Eitz Hadar. Pre means fruit. Eitz means tree, and Hadar means beauty. And so when you put these together, there are two ways you can really look at this. 
either what you want is a beautiful tree. So that's pre a fruit from an eight hadar, a beautiful tree. And to me, that meant the date palm tree. It's a gorgeous tree. It's like a firework. It's beautiful. And it's just gorgeous. And the fruit isn't so fancy. A date. It's kind of like an overgrown candy. It's nothing much. It's just brown. There's, there's no beauty there. But the, the, it's fruit from a beautiful tree. The second way to interpret it was actually it is tree fruit, meaning fruit from a tree, but that fruit needs to be beautiful. And to me, I was thinking about the pomegranate. The pomegranate is a gorgeous, when it's ripe, it's beautiful. You cut it open, it's beautiful. It's beautiful in and out. And the tree, anyone who has a pomegranate tree, it's kind of like an overgrown shrub. It's, it's nothing fancy. So you might not even know it's a pomegranate tree until you see the pomegranates. So it really is kind of um, not that fancy. So those were the two ways that I found. I said that this phrase, pre eight hadar of Leviticus 23.40, could either be talking about beautiful fruits or beautiful trees. And then I started researching and started and going and going, and then I, I, it just kept going. And the fascinating thing for me was just how many interpretations there were and um, just how big this project became. And so we were speaking before the show that one of the things that is just really great about the book is all the different visualizations. And so certainly in the ebook, they're in color and a lot of beautiful things to see. And one of the things is not an image per se, not a picture, but is a, a flow chart. Um, I, I love flow charts personally. And I think that we look on page 81, there's this really, really nice flow chart, which helps people understand these various interpretations that you're speaking about. So I think it could be fun just to see and to understand how many variations there are of the, of the what does it mean, pre-8 Sadar. And so if, if we go to that page, so... There's a nice little era to begin here. And so if, I think we, we, we can walk through um, together. We won't, we won't necessarily go through the whole thing or, or see the many, many, many interpretations, but at least to get a flavor, pun intended, of the interpretations, we, we, we can have a look and speak about the flowchart itself. Would, would that work? Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll play the game. Right? The, the game is how do you interpret this phrase, pre eight Sadar? Um, fruit of tree of beauty. Uh, so it, that page 81 uh, actually has, I think, 24 different interpretations of those words. And when I say 24, I don't mean 24 possible. I mean 24 actual interpretations, meaning somebody at some point in time translated this verse in this way. Um, and so what really comes up is there's a lot of issues and let's play the game. But the first major question you're going to have, Matthew, as an interpreter, is, is there a contradiction? Because in Vayikra, in Leviticus, it says on Sukkot, you're supposed to take fruit. And then in the book of Nehemiah, it talks about on Sukkot, it doesn't mention fruit. So that's going to be your first issue. So why don't we go through the flowchart and see how you would interpret and where you end up. And maybe you'll end up where I did and see, and see how it goes. Okay, so would you like to read it? Sure thing. So it begins, do you interpret Priyat Sadar so that Leviticus 23.40 matches Nehemiah 8.15, which is about branches and not fruit? So I'm, I'm going to go with yes. So I'm going I'm to try to bring them together as much as I can. So I'm going to say yes. All right. So so there's, so there's what you're trying to do is make the Tanakh, there's, right now there's no contradiction here. We're trying to even everything out. And so you'll now decide what's more important of these two. 
um, the the Nehemia or the or the or Vayikra. All right. So the next question is: Does pre mean fruit or branches? And so pre means fruit, but there's a very similar word to pre that is poare with an aleph in it, and poare means branches. And anybody who studies Tanakh, the aleph sometimes drop out. You don't always see them, especially in verbs. Um, they weren't necessarily pronounced. So it, would it have been branches or would it have been fruit? So what do you think? I'm going to go with fruit. I think fruit as, as a typical understanding of pre is, is going to speak to me. So I'm going to say fruit. All right. Okay. And then what's your next question? And the next question is, does Hadar describe the olive tree alone? And the reason for this is that the word in, Tan- in the Tanakh for beauty, Hadar, uh, often appears in passages about olive trees. It, it just comes up and keeps coming up. So does Hadar, is just about, is it an olive word or is it a general word? I'm going to go with a general word. All right. So you have, you have found your interpretation. So why don't you go for it? All right. So this interpretation is the second Karat interpretation namely beautiful fruit trees, that is palm fronds. So what that means is that on Sukkot, you are taking the branches of any tree, not just the olive tree, and your Sukkot, let's say, to give an idea of the lulav netrog, you wouldn't have netrog, you would just have the the lulav, the hadas, the, the, the aravot, and then that's it. You would have just the branches. And that is what Sukkot would mean for you. So you would have a very leafy, a very woody kind of Sukkot, but there's no fruit whatsoever. So that's where you ended up, right? Um, I ended up at a different place. I ended up kind of the opposite end of this this chart. And for me, pre-Etzadar meant that the fruit needs to be beautiful. And it's really any type of fruit of the harvest. And so in ancient Israel, that harvest would have been the pomegranates, the dates, the the figs, the grapes, and the olives. And so when Sukkot comes around, which is at the end, right at the harvest festival, so you would want to go out into your into your um, field, gather the fruits of your festival, and that, that's why fruit is included in the holiday. It's the fruits are very important because you just farm them. And that's where I ended up. Out of the 24, you ended up one way, I ended up another. So, Just to push you a little bit. Um, so you, you said that if I take this interpretation, therefore I do a certain thing. But we both know that if we look at the interpretation of the Tanakh, biblical interpretation over the years from different people, there isn't always a, a clear connection between ritual and what people actually do. So if we take the case of Rashbam, who would interpret the verse about phylacteries in a certain way, in a, in a perhaps more literal way, but yet he would ritualistically practice differently. How would you, you view these two different things between interpretation and ritual in this case? Yes, so Rashbam, I don't think comes up major in this discussion, but uh, Ibn Ezra does. Avram Ibn Ezra was a fascinating uh, medieval interpreter who would often say, this is what the verse means, but if the rabbis have a tradition, I throw my hands up and I'm just going to accept it, right? And so actually on this exact issue, that's what he does. He, Him and I interpret the same way and we both say, hey, 
Um, this is this is what the verse means: is that in ancient Israel, when um, when an ancient Israelite would have heard these this verse, uh, the meaning would have been, "Oh yeah, that's the fruit from the fields. That's my pomegranates. That's my um, that's my uh, date, and so on." But David Ezra says, "Well, if there's a tradition about the etrog, then." I accept it. And so the same thing with me. Every single year I go, I buy an etrog. I, I love it. Um, I, I use it every year on Sukkot. I try planting them and, you know, growing more etrog trees. But um, at, at the end of the day, you're right. There is kind of a difference between what the text might say and suggest and what one's practice might be. Um, my friend always says to me every year, he gives me a, a text. He says, hey, so um, what, are you, what are you taking this year? A watermelon? What are you? What are you going to use this year? Uh, a, a papaya, a mango, um, and so no, I say etro every year. I'm taking the etro. I'm taking the etro. So um, yeah, there is that distance between what I think the text says and what practices. That's a helpful clarification. So if we, we've been looking and digging into the weeds of the interpretation, which is very helpful. But I do want to go back a little bit and start from the very beginning, the cover, the title, and to understand what we're trying to do in this book. So the title of the book is, is Etrog, how a Chinese fruit became a Jewish symbol. So we can unpack all those words. And I think in some ways we will, as we move the conversation forward, but I wanted to ask in a broad way, were there any other titles that you thought could work or was this the one that came out first and you decided to use? Well, this was the general, this was the title, but the issue was Chinese um, because citrus fruits, all, all fruits come from somewhere on earth. Um, like where they evolved. And there's different ways to find out where a fruit evolved. Um, DNA now makes it very interesting. But even without DNA, uh, you can just look at what kind of species co-evolved with it. You know, are there, where are the bugs that are like perfect for this tree? And you can also look at things. Um, and there are other ways such as seeing how much genetic diversity there is. Like there might be one type of etrog tree let's say, growing in Israel, but if there's 50 growing in China randomly, then that's a big sign. Uh, so the area of Yunnan, China, was, at least until a few years ago, considered the, the epicenter of, of where this all came about, the citrus fruits in general. But um, it's, it's really, a, it's, you know, fruits don't care about modern borders. So the border between India and China is, you know, meaningless for a fruit. So um, like the question was, it going to be how a Indo-Chinese plus a bunch of other countries? Um, but we settled on Chinese just to, because at that time, Yunnan, China was considered the main birthplace of citrus fruits. So if we flip the page of the book, we're hit with the book dedication. And the dedication is, it reads, to Hannah Beth, my first fruit. So I'm assuming that this is your daughter. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And I want to know, what do you hope she learns from this book? This is an excellent question. Um, I, yeah, so she was born in, in a year and a half before this book came out. Uh, so I guess the first thing I would hope is that she realizes that I love her and I'm dedicating this to her. I think that's the most important thing. And the second thing is what I, what I told you at the beginning is like this really, going on love, this really was a joy. This is one of the greatest joys in my life was, was studying this issue um, because as we just started with the botany, I'm not a botanist, um, but I was introduced through this to like a whole, there's a whole etrog 
Citron like underground of people who have different interests. Like there's there's like the botanists, there's the growers, there's the the like the the Food and Drug Administration people. There's the there's the Israelis. There's the there's the China. It's like so there's this whole community of, of people studying different aspects of this fruit. Um, and it it was just it just keeps going and going. There's there's so much fascinating history with it. So um, yeah, just to kind of show her that this is something that I've loved studying, and hopefully that comes across in the in in the in the book itself. I think it definitely does. If you look, just how many sources you're quoting. If you look at at the the depth that you go, I see love there, and I, I hope that she does as well. If we flip the page again, we're we're, we're at the introduction. And introduction, you mentioned, and this goes on what we're just saying that there really is so much to the, to the work, so much to the research. The book itself is around 150 pages, but there really is so much packed into it. And the research process, your research project was was very vast. And so you mentioned that looking at at, at botany looking at different evolutionary processes. What, what were some of the other methodologies, tools that you use, and were there any challenges involved within that broader research process? Yeah, so I, I guess this book answers three questions. That's basically, it took a while for me to realize what the questions were. Um, but the first question was, how did this fruit get to Israel? That's the first question. Um, and to answer that wasn't just botany. That was the, Indi- that was the China, India stuff. But it was also history and um, the, the difficulties in trying to track a fruit over, over time are that there's a lot of images from around the world that were of fruits that look similar to a lemon, to an etrog, but aren't exactly. So I had to track down all these different people who said that they think that the, there was an etrog in ancient Egypt. I'm like, how can I prove a negative? It's impossible. But like, it just didn't seem right to me. Um, so that was the difficulty, trying to say, no, the etrog wasn't here at the beginning. It slowly made its way over. And the way it over, the, the real person who, you know, you know, who kind of broke the dam and figured this all out was an archaeologist named Daphna Langit. And uh, there's a neighborhood in Jerusalem. It didn't used to be Jerusalem, but it's called Ramat Rachel. And it's now famous for two things, a pool, as well as the American embassy, the new American embassy. So that's Ramat Rachel. Um, That used to be outside of Jerusalem. And that was actually an outpost for the so-called invaders of the land. So that's the that's the Assyrians, um, the Pers- the Babylonians, the Persians, and, and so on and so forth. And so she actually just looked at the the pollen in one of those gardens at the at that place, Rachel, and she found etrog. And now we actually that is the biggest leap because it makes sense of wait, why is this first of all, the etrog was the first fruit that wasn't local to come west. Right. If you go into a uh, if you go into a market in ancient Israel, it, there's no oranges, there's no mangoes, there's nothing. It's just your 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 five main fruits, um, your your figs, your dates, your olives, your um, grapes, and your pomegranates. That's it. And so so all of a sudden now we see that the the people in power were growing this probably as an ornamental. Look, I have a yellow beautiful fruit here. And that ornamental, that beautiful fruit, once it's in the land, then the Jews were kind of saying, we need a beautiful fruit here, because this phrase, pre-Tadar, was so 
ambiguous and they saw this beautiful fruit. It was the first one. And then I think that's how it all started. So that was the first major, major question of, of the book. Um, the second one we already discussed is interpretation. And that was, well, what does pre-Hadar mean? And that was really almost like a meditative kind of experience because I would see an interpreter translate or write about the phrase. And then it would sometimes take weeks, months, or even years to figure out what that interpreter is doing and what, how you end up at 24 different approaches to one phrase, right? And so that was the, that just took time and a lot of thought. Um, and then I guess, so your question was like, any big issues? Then the third, uh, the third part of this book was actually really, um, it all came from a, an advice from a former professor of mine and a friend of mine, Stephen Fine at Yeshiva University, where he said, start looking at the Samaritans. And that's, that's actually when you mentioned the title, the Jewish symbol, that actually came from his advice and started to look at the Jewish symbol. So we've gone into a bit some of the different sections of the book, and we'll continue to, to dive in and to have a look. But if we look across the board at the different chapters and, and, and parts of the book, which was the one which you had the most fun writing? Yeah, for me, it's the interpretations. Like you're, uh, when, when I was able to say, okay, this, this rabbinic midrash is interpreting X, but that rabbinic midrash is interpreting Y, and you, it was just realizing that everyone is kind of grappling with this ambiguity, and no one really, no one really has like the answer. We're all, everyone's just trying their best, right? And um, and that goes for me too. I don't think I have the answer. I think I have a really, um, I have, I have a really nice approach, but you, you know, uh, no one can really know for sure. And so that was really my my favorite part. But but it's, it was all exciting. Every aspect was exciting. And as you mentioned, like the images, there's a lot in there. Um, this, when you're dealing with a fruit, as opposed to, let's say, like a biblical law, you know, there's so much, there's so much visual history that you can take a look at. History in posters, history in archaeology, uh, just there's so much to, to really show and, and illustrate. And if we're speaking about the pictures and, and the different uses of the etrog, which are shown through the book and then through the images, were there any interesting uses of the etrog that you saw in other cultures, which you were surprised by, you were interested to see? Because for me, that was something which I really enjoyed to see, that the etrog is not just something which is a Jewish symbol, but it's used in all sorts of different cultures and places. Yeah, there's there's a variant of... So the etrog in, in English is called Citrus Medica, or the citron. Um, and so all etrogium are citrons, but not all citrons are etrogium, if, if that makes sense. And there's one variant, it's actually a very interesting botanical variant. There's one variant, it's an interesting botanical variant. It's um, called the Buddha's hand citron. And if anybody's seen this kind of like, take your hands, put them together, like you're clapping, but start like wiggling your fingers. That's what this fruit looks like, almost like a an octopus of sorts. And uh, it, it's really interesting because it's, a, it's they're all genetically the same. They don't have seeds. You can't reproduce this fruit. Like if you go back a thousand years, it's the same. It's the same fruit, just regrafted, re regrafted, regrafted. But like that comes up a lot in uh, Chinese and Indian culture, 
just put his hands to trunk. Whereas for for Jews, the etrog, that's not an etrog. You know, like I've never seen anyone, at least not a jest, bring in a Buddhist hand citron for, for Sukkot, you know, to synagogue. So um, that was really interesting. Another thing was I mentioned the Persians, as it was going from east to west, the Persians have a, a lot of interesting jams that they make out of the citron uh, and the etrog. And one of them is very similar to what many Jews call like Bubby's esrog jam you know like the, the grandmothers for some reason it's the grandmothers i don't know why but like it just keeps coming up that way um and so that jam that people make out of out of the etro just needs a ton of sugar but um after that sugar's in then it's all it all kind of works really nicely so yeah as the as it shifts but one of the one of the interesting things about writing a book as opposed to writing chapters and essays and articles was i tried to think about it it, like a thought experiment of the fruit um, from its perspective, you know, over the last 2000 years. And, you know, like it started out as a really random fruit in, in we'll, we'll call China, but it's the greater area uh, in Yunnan. And it wasn't really valuable at all. It just was almost like, like for us, like a weed almost, you didn't eat it. So like, what was it doing? And then like, as it made its way West to India, it starts popping up in medical treatments in as you know perhaps especially for people with um with stomach issues they would give um in the in in the vedic test uh uh text they would give them a trope and then we kind of get to the persians we're going even more west and the persians are not growing it as a fancy ornamental in their gardens and then finally we get to israel where like all of a sudden it doesn't become a fruit for one for one week out of the year it's the fruit and it's the most important fruit period. And people will, for 2,000 years, will spend tons of money and, and resources just to get a good one. So it really kind of made its way up as it made its way west. You mentioned before about the, the move, the transfer of the fruit, of the etrog, from China, from the Chinese region, and then it eventually making its way into Israel. I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on that um, from a historical perspective, when that took place and more specifically how that took place. Yeah, so um, for some reason, and I don't know why, the etrog was the first eastern fruit that made its way west. Uh, and we can sort of track it as it's coming in um, the works of um, the Greeks and the Romans and so on and so forth, making its way, popping up, and um, different authors saying, when I was in Persia, I saw this fruit. And it's even called the Persian apple um, in, many, in many phrases, in many, um, in many texts. And so, like, and then by the time you get to someone like Josephus, which is the first century, um, it, you know, he's already talking about it as if it's normal. So for sure, by the first century, it, it was very normal. But um, even before then, there were uh, there were Maccabeans using etrogim in their coins, and so um, yeah, the etrog made its way in the last few centuries before the Common Era, all the way over. And it actually had an interesting. You talk about like um, you know that process. There there are really cool hints along the way about how it made its way. Like um, there's a Gemara. I uh, I forget exactly where. Maybe near Shalmi that says anybody who calls the fruit a tranga um, is haughty. 
So what do we call it? We call it etrog. So it's etrog, not etranga. And like, what's that nun in there? Why is there a nun in, in etrog? But then you realize that the Persian word for, for the etrog is wadrang, with a nun, wadrang. So wadrang, etrong, right? You start seeing it. And um, actually, as time would go on, this phrase, wadrang, etrong, would actually turn into narange and orange. So like the word orange actually comes from the citron. People were just really confused because they all they knew was one citrus fruit. Now all of a sudden there's two. They didn't know what to call it, so they it became the orange. Um, but but yeah, it, it it made its way over in the Second Temple period, and in that sense, I actually think that it was when I think about biblical interpretations, this is one of the, if not the oldest interpretation of the Tanakh I know. Um, I can only think of a few others that are so completely entrenched that it's hard to look at a time before. Um, so like, for example, another one that's really ancient would be that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, and a, a break for a break. That's, that means money. It means money for an eye, money for a tooth, money for a break. Like that's a really ancient interpretation. We don't have Gemara saying, oh yeah, we, we gouged out people's eyes. We broke their arms. It just doesn't happen that way. So the same thing with the etro. We don't have anything before it. It just seems to be, um, it just seems to be as as ancient as the as the second temple period itself. If we think about the interpretation and historical reconstruction you're proposing, so it's not something that I think um, traditional segments of, of the Jewish society would agree with, uh, in the sense that they would think these things go further back or are, are part of some sort of oral tradition. So, from your perspective, how do you? handle that pushback? How do you think about that within a more traditional framework when people are, are asking about it from, from that angle? Yeah, and people ask me this question a lot, and they mention the Rambam, Maimonides, um, because Maimonides, one of his, in his discussions of um, what is the oral law, and Rambam was, you know, in a debate with a lot of the Karaites who were not into the oral law, um, but, but Rambam, one of the things he mentions is, you know, no one's ever taken a watermelon instead of a, an etrog. It's always been the etrog, and the etrog's not mentioned. And this is a this is a proof of the antiquity of the oral law. And so, for me, that's a proof of antiquity. It's a very good it's a very good point he's making. But um, I don't think it would go back to as far as he would like it to be. For me, it's a, a proof of an ancient Jewish tradition, an ancient Jewish interpretation, and um, almost kind of. A good point of this is there were other ancient Israelites uh, in the Second Temple period, other than the Jews, and that is the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are still around today um, in two places, Israel and in the in the West Bank by Shechem, Nablus. And uh, the Samaritans they don't have an asterisk. they actually do like an asterisk. They use it for as one of many fruits, but they don't have like the etrog. Um, they just have lots and lots of fruits many fruits, you know, pears, pineapples, whatever they can get. They, they have all those fruits, beautiful fruits. Uh, and so to kind of the idea for me is like, this is an ancient Jewish interpretation, as opposed to necessarily, this is what Moshe would have been shaking with his four, with his, like, did King David have an etrog? So all signs point to know the etrog wasn't yet included in ancient Israel. It wasn't, it hadn't yet arrived. Um, and one of the ways we kind of, one of the interesting ways we know this is from the Tanakh itself. 
fruits appear everywhere in the Tanakh. They, there are place names after fruit. There's people like Tamar named after fruit. Um, there's stories with fruit, you know, the famous one in, in Eden, but there's many others. Um, there's laws about fruits and beating your olive tree. There's so much, it, all over the Tanakh, you have these fruits. Um, but it's always the same five fruits. And the five fruits are the, the ones we, we had mentioned, the fruits of the land that, that the Israelites would have been, would have been, would have been um, using. So in ancient Israel, what I actually think Sukkot would have been um, at the time of, let's say, a King David or in much earlier than the Second Temple period, would have been a celebration of the Harvest Festival in the Sukkot. And your sukkah, your tabernacle or tent, would have been in the fields. And the reason you do that is the same reason that that the Arab farmers of 100 years ago would have huts in the field. And their huts in the field were, that's where you lived when you collected all your produce. You didn't want to keep going back and forth from your house to, to, your, to your hut. And you also wanted to protect your, your produce. You didn't want foxes coming and stealing all your grapes, as well as you didn't want your neighbor coming and stealing all your grapes. So people were living out in the, in the fields at that time of year. They were living out in the huts, and that's where the fruit was. And there you go. There's your pre-Sadar, your beautiful fruit trees. Then you have your, your huts made out of branches. As we mentioned in Nehemiah, you have, you have the, the, the branches, and you put it all together. It's a very joyous occasion for singing and dancing. We said at the top that the book, part of the title of the book is speaking about a Jewish symbol. The Etrog is a Jewish symbol. I think we touched on it a little bit, but I'd love for you to elaborate. What exactly is the symbol? What does it mean in earlier history? What does it mean now? What can we learn from the Etrog as a symbol? Excellent. So, so as a symbol for me, it, we're talking symbols of identity. So when I drive by a really nice, um, like for example, where where I live in Yonkers, New York, there's a um, there's a really nice shul, a synagogue, right? A beautiful synagogue, and I drive by, and I can see it has all the typical um, synagogue architecture of the 1960s, but there's a really big cross out on the front, and immediately, you know, that's not a shul anymore. It's not a synagogue. Um, that cross tells me that it's a church. And conversely, in another neighborhood um, in near where I live in, in New Rochelle, there's a really beautiful church, but out in the front is a, is a Jewish star and a Chabad um, symbol. So I know that's not a church anymore. That's a, that's a synagogue. So basically symbols can tell us about who the people are. They're symbols of identity. And when it came to uh, the first few centuries um, of the common era, and even just before them, you know, towards the end of the second temple period, uh, you, you would ask, well, how did the different peoples differentiate themselves? One of the ways they would do it is by art. And so if there's a, if there's a synagogue, you're going to have a beautiful mosaic in your synagogue. And if you're a church, you're going to have a beautiful mosaic in your church. And if you're a Samaritan with a Samaritan temple, or Samaritan synagogue, you're going to have a mosaic. And so a Christian, a Christian church is very easy to just say that's not Jewish because once you have the, the symbol of the of the cross, that's it. You're you're done. You don't need to go into you don't need to find the 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 actual images. You already see it. It's it's very easy. But the Jews and the Samaritans were very similar. They both had the Torah, they both 
worshipped in very similar types of synagogues and temples. So what is the distinguishing feature? So when we look at the mosaics, all the mosaics, they're going to have the menorah. It's checked for both sides. If you look at all the mosaics, they're going to have maybe something like the showbread or a, uh, a what, what some people think is a temple, but is actually a, an, an ark in a, of a Torah scroll. Check, check. Everyone has the same stuff. So what's the difference between the Samaritans and the Jews? And so at this point, the Jewish artists, um, or at least the people who were paid to make the Jewish art, um, would include the Etrog and the Lulav. Because the Samaritans did not have the Etrog and the Lulav. They did not have this ancient Jewish interpretation, but the Jews did. And that's why when you go to any, um, to any synagogue, a mosaic in Israel, whether you're in the Israel Museum or whether you're touring the Galilee, wherever you go, if it says it's a Jewish synagogue, there's a good chance there's going to be the Lulav and Etrog. So that's what, what happens there. And it's not just that. It ends up being on lintels for doors in the synagogues. And it ends up being on lamps and, and so on and so forth. So what essentially happens is like the, what we have today, they didn't have back then, the, the, the Muggid David, the, the, um, the Star of David. So what said that this was a Jewish place? It actually was the Etrog. That would be the one difference between the Samaritans and the Jews. That's very helpful to think about that. I, I really appreciate it. So there's obviously a lot more, but I want to make sure that um, I didn't miss, miss, miss anything critical. And so was there anything that I didn't ask that you want to cover that we should speak about? No, I thought, I thought we, we really touched upon the, the, entire, the entire book. This was a, a Chinese fruit that became a Jewish symbol. And it became that way through interpretation of, of the Tanakh. So there it is. I really appreciate that. I've taken up a lot of your time. On the New Books Network, we have a traditional closing question I'd love to ask you. What are you working on next? Ah, so, well, well like I mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's coincidental timing here. Um, just within a, a, a few weeks of uh, this recording, um, I have a two really helpful resources for people who want to learn to read biblical Hebrew. And they're almost like menus that you can kind of unfold. And I did this during COVID. This was my COVID project. I would do this at night once the kids are sleeping um, every night. And I basically made two menus, two cheat sheets, so to speak. The first one is this grammar card, which has everything I know about Hebrew grammar all in one spot. Nouns, verbs, adjectives, the different stems, the binyanim, all of it in one spot. Numbers, we even have weights and measures. And then the second one is about 1,600 of the most common um, of the most common words in the Tanakh. So these are coming out right now. They're available on Amazon. In terms of what I'm working on, I'm still developing an idea, but I'm doing a lot of manuscript studies of the Tanakh, and that means the ancient codices where we get our Tanakhs from, the Tiberian Masterites. You may have heard of the Aleppo Codex or the Leningrad Codex, kind of going through all of those. Um, and starting to get a project going. So maybe in a few years, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Maybe in a five years from now, we'll get a, a nice uh, repeat. Good stuff. I look forward to it. looks like a lot of good stuff. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Rabbi Dr. David Moster, author of Etrog, How, a Jew- How a Chinese Fruit Became a Jewish Symbol, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2018. Happy reading, my friends. <laughs>